other as you draw us into your presence. We pray that you would help us to be swept up in that work that has yet to be done. We pray, Lord, for our, our spirit, Lord, that accomplishes your purposes here in this place. We pray, Lord, that you would shake us loose down to our bones. But as you do that, Lord, that you'd refresh each cell of our body. Help us to have a new wind blow through this place. Help us to have a new spirit rest upon our minds and our hearts. Help us to be open and uh, change. Just take away the years and the uh, things that limit us in any way and instead replace them, Lord, with a graciousness, a fullness of what you're attempting to do in this time. As you have called us into uh, this kingdom to accomplish your purpose here's, purposes here in this time, we pray that you would draw us onto you. We repent, Lord, together as brothers and sisters. We repent, Lord, individually of sins that we speak against you, do against you, hide from you, cover up, make excuses for. Sins, Lord, that are repetitively uh, holding us back down and continuing to drag us down. Sins, Lord, that shame us and embarrass us. Sins, Lord, that change our countenance, that shut our ears to the moving of your own spirit. Sins, Lord, that hurt people that we say we love. Sins that are disguised as uh, righteousness. Sins that are disguised as uh, okay and acceptable. All kinds of behaviors, things, things, Lord, that we need to come face to face and deal with. We're asking, Father, that in this evening you would come and be in the heart of your people. That you would minister to the needs you know are here. That you would quiet us before you. Let grace fill this place. In your name, Jesus. If you have your Bibles tonight, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians. Uh, we've been trying to look at some of the unusual things. I feel like I got an echo yet or a reverb on in my voice here. Turn the reverb off. Um, in uh, 2 Corinthians, we're in chapter 7. You hear it? Uh, still too long. All right. In that first letter, and he had, he had really nailed them in a lot of ways. He had really put some pressure on them. And so in this second letter, he's now addressing that. And so we want to kind of bring that all together because he, he talks about it in the context of repentance. And I, I want to watch what you and I can learn from it because it's really beautiful. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little context here. So I'm going to really just focus on verse 8 through about uh, 12 there, 13. But I want to start reading that verse uh, 7, verse uh, 2, so it gives you a little context. Make room for us in your hearts. Paul speaking to the Corinthians. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. 
We've exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said this before, and you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. Give you a little flavor of his heart as he talks to them. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed on every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only us by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even though I caused you, now he's saying this back to the Corinthians, this is the part I want you to focus on, even though I caused you sorrow by my letter, that comes from the last letter he wrote, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted you are to, to us you are. By all of this we are encouraged. Now, <clears throat> The real focus I want to center in on is that Paul addresses repentance. And the nature of repentance, like I told you, sometimes uh, in order to bring people to repentance, there is that work that is done by confrontation, by honesty, by toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart. And when Paul wrote his last letter, in a sense, he kind of went face-to-face, toe-to-toe with these people, and he said, what is wrong with you? You allow immorality among your people and you do nothing about it. And so he confronted them, and he said, Your immorality is like yeast working its way through this lump of dough, and it's infecting your whole church. As you tolerate it at this level, it spreads in every direction and rubs itself and invades all the other hearts and lives of people around. And so he really is very blunt, and he scolds them and says, You should be mourning, you should be weeping, you should be broken, but instead you have it all wrong. And so it's a really blunt, honest word. And uh, in this context, of course, he's now addressing the fact that when that sorrow was begun in their heart, when that confrontation took place, what it led to is what he defines here as godly sorrow. And that's contrasted with worldly sorrow. You get that, that balancing flavor. And you've got to understand that you can experience both sitting in a church service, sitting at the feet of God, or when the Holy Spirit's working on you, you have this kind of freedom to take and experience all the power that God is pouring into that either that conversion moment or that repentance moment, and you can receive all that God wants you to receive in that moment 
which is good and cleansing and purifying, or you can receive just the opposite as you turn and respond to God in the flesh, and you choose your flesh, and you react to God in your flesh, and suddenly you feel like God is oppressive and demanding and unfair and that he is wearing you down, and that's that other, that other sense of loss and emptiness and hollowness. That's the worldly sorrow side. And so in this challenge, one of the things obviously we want as we stand before our, our Lord in this Lenten season and try to examine uh, repentance and sorrow and all the things that come from it is to try to understand that sorrow doesn't necessarily produce the same thing. You can be sorrowful and it produces the best moment of your life. You can be sorrowful and it produces the worst moment of your life. In a situation, I'm uh, counseling with someone who you don't know, but he's in a terrible situation with uh, some uh, really serious marital things and stuff like that. And, uh, and I was explaining uh, that uh, this is a significant crisis, and I said a crisis is uh, one of the neat things that I learned a long time ago is that crisis is either an opportunity for good or an opportunity for evil. Uh, crisis in and of itself is not the end. It just simply leads you to make some decisions and respond. The crisis itself is just that threshold that draws you to that point where you're going to either respond as God would have you respond in the power of the Spirit, or you're going to respond in the power of the flesh or the demonic, and you're going to drag and pull and wretch uh, your life in that direction. And that's kind of that, that sensitivity. And uh, one of the things that was really interesting is because we were dealing with some things related to alcoholism and some other things like that that were permeating the family. And the difficulty was that uh, this particular individual had already had a crisis and by the power of God moved in the right direction. Now the husband was in that same point of crisis and the question was which direction was he going to move in. And that becomes a really difficult next step or stage or whatever else you want to name. And so in that moment where you begin to understand in real live people, in real live action, here you are in the middle of a situation where a crisis presents itself, where for one reason or another you are now laying out in front of them, not necessarily your ultimatum, but kind of life's ultimatum. This is a choice. You can hang on to your marriage or you can lose it at this time. You can keep your wife or you can lose your wife at this time. You know, that kind of crisis that isn't necessarily my doing, but obviously being revealed or being a part of the counseling moment that you're going through. In that moment, those people, that individual, each one of them is being given an opportunity. And of course, my job, for lack of a better description, is to <laughs> maybe smooth the way as much as one can possibly smooth it so that they have this greatest opportunity to choose that which is righteous, good, and true because you cannot make that decision for them. You can only lead them. You can only pray the anointing upon them. You can only smooth it out in front of them. You can only help them try and understand the advantages of making the right choice. But ultimately, like you know and I know, that uh, like the old song goes, you've got to walk through the valley all by yourself eventually, right? No one else can walk it with you. You've got to walk that decision ultimately alone, not alone as a godly man, but alone in one sense by yourself and in a human perspective, but alone in the sense of, of understanding that I and God have got to go down this path, and this is a place I have to own this decision, in part like that. And so here in this illustration, you've got that kind of sense about what repentance does to you. And you felt it. You know what I'm talking about. In your life, that, that repentance always brings you to those points uh, 
when the law is preached properly, when the Word of God is beginning to minister to your life, and when the Spirit of God begins to work. And it isn't always something as dramatic as losing your marriage or hanging on to your marriage. Sometimes it's something as simple as a habit that God's been asking you to turn away from, uh, a television that needs to go off, uh, a situation with your wife or your family that needs to change, a, an attitude or a behavior that you know is not godly, that God has been working on you, and he, He's pushing you, guiding you, pulling you into that direction, and you feel those kind of crisis points, and you feel those kind of pressure points, and that's where you begin to understand where that sorrow comes from. Real repentance, unfortunately, does involve a sorrow. And the sorrow can be sometimes just deep regret, but sometimes it can be sorrow because this person, for instance, doesn't want to give up their drinking. This person's greatest sorrow is the possibility, like another woman, their alcohol is their bride. Their alcohol is satisfied them. It's their best friend. And if you know anything about that disease or that sickness or that attitude or whatever, however you want to define it right now, and I'm not trying to make it one way or the other right now for you, but however you want to define it, that person has got this longing and the sorrow that you're dragging them into and they're going to have to deal with is the sorrow of letting that portion, that attitude, that relationship with that, that alcohol die. And that sorrow is great in many cases. And so not only do you have to think just in terms of sorrow, I regret how I've been living and how I treated this person, but you have to also think and understand that some of the sorrow that it comes through repentance is the sorrow and wishing I could continue on with my old lifestyle, right? You've got to recognize that this is not, they're, they're, we're, we're such peculiar people, right? You've got something that's hurting you, ruining your life. It's like watching this the young girl in my class cry and weep for a guy who couldn't be uh, reliable enough in her world to hang on to her or be respectful of her after she said, we're, we're, we're cleaning up our act. We're not going to be immoral anymore. And he said, fine, I'll find somebody new. And within a week or two, whatever that length of time was, you know, here she is, she's weeping over him. And you kind of want to go, don't weep over him. Okay? And you have to understand, there's a sorrow always connected because here's the pressure of the Spirit. Here's the thing God's leading her to do. He's walking her out of this path. He's drawing her to this point. You pick this man who's struggling with alcohol. He's weeping and sorrowful because he does not want to let go of that very thing that right now is the support system in his life that has as much meaning in his world, in the context of his life, in many cases as his wife and children and anything else. And you can step on the outside and go, well, how foolish, how absolutely insane. But from the inside, you've got to recognize that you probably have your own stupidities where you're clinging to something that is absolutely foolish. It's as foolish as loving a guy who will not invest himself in you. It's as foolish as loving a drug that offers you nothing in reality but self-deception, delusion, sickness, and everything else that goes along with it. And so you're learning that in this moment of sorrow, there is a sorrow that is created and ultimately, out of that sorrow, God's Spirit wants to work in your life, and He wants to produce these changes in you. So it goes on, I did regret, and like I said, I get done talking to this young girl, there's almost this, this heaviness upon my heart, because I see as I give her something that is true, that I just watch it just kind of bust her open sometimes. It just kind of, it makes her very vulnerable. It, it, it sometimes, I, I'm not sure if I, you know, you, you have to watch not only what you say, but how you say things. 
and you go, did I say it with not only the right thing, did I say it the right way, at the right time, with the right attitude, and the right tone in my voice? And so sometimes I, I can very much relate uh, to what Paul is, or, yeah, Paul is communicating here in terms of I regretted it at the time because it was burdensome to me. It weighed on me because I was giving you such a tough, clear word. Then he goes on to say that, but though I did not regret it. I did regret it, though I did not regret it, because I see my letter, well, I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Which is obviously my hope, right? I'm not talking to this young lady or this particular couple because I'm trying to hurt them. I'm talking to them because the truth will hurt. The loss of this relationship will bring sorrow. The loss of this dependence upon alcohol will bring a missingness, a sorrow. But ultimately, your real purpose, as Paul picks it up here, is to produce a sorrow that lasts for only a short time so that the next decision can be made so that they can begin functioning in the, in the following place. So it goes, um, but only for a little while. Yet now, I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. And that's the thing you and I can't be afraid of. Uh, there's, a, there's this process where, in some cases, you are the voice of God, you are the, the revealed word of God, you are the spokesperson for God, you are God's man or God's woman in that moment. And uh, you've got to understand that this is your time, your place. Uh, we were just going through the spiritual gifts in class, and um, I was trying to explain to the kids martyrdom. Martyrdom doesn't always imply that you're necessarily going to go out, tie yourself to a stake, and get burned up for your faith. That martyrdom may mean that you put yourself at risk, and you put yourself in positions where you are willing to risk your friendships to stand with Christ. And so your martyrdom is the loss of this friend. Your martyrdom is the loss of this relationship. Your martyrdom is the loss of this thing that, you know, was so important in your life. And you begin to recognize, I am willing to give my life up in order to be God's man or woman in this job, in this profession, in this position, and whatever else I'm in. And so uh, another one that we were addressing is kind of the prophetic gifts where you're trying to help them understand that sometimes in prophetic gifts you irritate. Uh, prophecy is not always pleasant. It's, uh, it's irritating. Not irritating like hurtful irritating, but irritating to produce this godly sorrow, right? And so in some cases they again have to step into those gifts and understand that's what God is calling them to use those gifts for. And you have to have that kind of courage because either tonight you're either going to be receiving this because God's Spirit wants to say to you, I want to bring you to godly sorrow. I've got something to deal with in your life. That's one option. But the other is you may relate tonight not so much to the Corinthians, but you may relate tonight to Paul in understanding that it is tough business to be God's man and woman in this culture where you have to say a word, and that word may produce sorrow, and that sorrow will weigh heavy on you because you're not always sure what the outcome is, and you may have to chew your way through that emotion of, did I say it at the right time in the right way with the right tone in my voice? You know, the right thing, right time, right way, and right tone. So you put that all down. So either one of those, whichever one you are, we need to be both, obviously. God is not calling you just simply to learn his word. 
So you can sit on it and say, well, I got that figured out. God's calling you because there's a, there's a son, a daughter, a man, a woman, a neighbor, somebody in your life that needs to hear the truth. And you can't uh, succumb to that stupidity of the culture that says, I have no right to say anything. It's none of my business to say anything. And all of that stuff. You have a responsibility to minister in the same way Paul did. It is a burdensome, challenging thing, and it weighs heavy on you. And so part of the message tonight is buck up under it. Be aware that this is what's required. If godly sorrow is going to be produced, godly word has to be brought to bear into these people's lives. And that's your responsibility. You have to have the courage to bring God, their life together in the word and in the things that you communicate with them. Does it mean it may cost you a friendship? Yes. Does it mean that it may turn their life eternally to the positive direction? Yes. And you have to step out in the obedience to the Spirit and risk it. The same thing is true as you start to understand God's Spirit ministering to you or God's Spirit ministering to what's being preached tonight or what somebody else has been saying to you. The second part which starts to give us that balanced focus, I'm happy not because you were sorry or sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to this repentance. And the word uh, repentance in the context really implies a, a, a complete change of attitude. It has a, a little flavor to it, this particular word for repentance here. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Now notice the little phrase, as God intended. You mean God wants me to become sorrowful? Yes. Why? Because it's in your sorrow that you come to grips with what you've been dealing with and what you're going to do and how it's affecting you. Does God weep in the sense of he's sorrowing because this little girl is finally coming to grips with the fact of what this relationship really meant to this young man and how deluded she really was? Yeah, I mean, he, he, you got to understand. He walks alongside. On the other hand, he's like a parent going, it is time. I am very thankful. I'm very happy in that sense that my child is finally getting this lesson. And so you have to be aware of both those processes as we go on in that, in that life or your life or mine, okay? They were not harmed. It goes, <clears throat> he became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Uh, the idea, of course, is that, you know, you have to realize if, if God is working in the situation, God is beginning to bring in the ministry, and God is, God's word is being given the freedom to work, at that point, what you're hoping for is that same moment that Paul finally said, I am so thankful that you weren't harmed by anything I said because that's the risk you take in real ministry to real life people. And so Paul here is really appreciating the fact that the Corinthians grabbed hold of it and it changed their lives in this case for the better. Then he finishes off. Godly sorrow, contrasted, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Two things happen when the sorrow is generated and is godly in nature. It still hurts. There's still going to be a severing of that relationship. There's still going to be a grieving over the loss of that friendship. There's still going to be a sense of shame, that first at least, until that person gets to that point where the Spirit of God finally uproots even that shame and removes the regret and other things there. But uh, you have to understand, there is that sorrowing that must take place until finally God enters into it and it begins to say, and then produces this, it leads to salvation a change, a, a rescue, a new path, a path of life and purpose and everything else that salvation implies there. And then second one leaves no regret. So now you go, uh, what is, you know, we talk about what does repentance do for me? 
Well, when it's real and sincere, empowered by God, and covered by God, does it hurt? Yes. Will I sometimes really long for the very thing that God's asking me to repent from? Yes. Will I feel a sense of severing and loss? Yes. But if it's godly sorrow, it will be replaced with salvation and no regret. You will look back on that moment and say, I do not regret that moment. I know now that God turned that moment into my moment of victory. God turned that situation into something that was going to bless me and change my life. And so here in this contest, it goes, godly sorrow brings that repentance, leaves no regret, and then it's contrasted with that second one, which can happen here in communion, which can happen here on a Sunday morning, which can happen here when your sorrow is not motivated, empowered by the Spirit, but it's motivated by the, 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 what we, what's called worldly sorrow. I mean, it isn't a question, are you sorrowing? And in one sense, from the outside, and even maybe from the inside, you can't always tell the difference. You can't tell which sorrow it is until finally you step back and you look and say, my goodness, I have God's salvation. God has taken away all regret. God has taken away all shame related to that event. I now know that that sorrow was necessary to get me to this point of wholeness and healing. Where if you begin to look and say, I have been sorrowing over this same guy, the same situation, week after week and month after month and so on and so forth, and why am I still sorrowing over it? And the answer comes back, because it's not godly sorrow, it's worldly sorrow. It's not where the Spirit has been allowed to minister to you in your sorrow, but where you think you got it under control, and you figure, oh God, I'm really sorry I'm doing this, and that's adequate, but there's no change. There's nothing that really ultimately comes by the empowering work of the Spirit into your life. And so you sit there in what here he calls worldly sorrow, and then it says it finally brings death. And I think the death there can either be spiritual or obviously physical. I mean, we talked last time about the impact of the lack of repentance on our lives, even in a physical realm. So you begin to watch that. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Now watch the list, because here's it. I'm opening a door. Here comes this door of what do you see when you see a person actually demonstrate godly sorrow. It begins to change their whole dynamic, their whole view of life, their whole relationship with people in the world, their whole interaction with everybody in their life and everything around them. You actually are opening a door. You go, remember, this repentance has produced, produced by godly sorrow now opens this door. They step into this room of salvation. They step into that room uh, also up there of no regret. And now this beautiful list. All right, and here it comes. Um, uh, see that what this godly sorrow has produced, what earnestness. And earnestness there means speed with which I attack something. I'm very focused. I am deliberate, and I'm moving forward on dealing with something in my life. Uh, it's like I told you. Remember, and I told you about Sherry. Uh, that's that girl that uh, God kind of brought into my life uh, way back when and uh, said, God sent me to, to you because you need to baptize me. That one, if you remember, part of my testimony from a long time ago. And uh, in terms of uh, the speed with which she changed was just unbelievable. And the earnestness with which she entered into it. I watched those things manifest in her life because her repentance was real and sincere. And God said, watch this. This is what real repentance does in the life of a child. This is a girl, like I told you, had been promiscuous. This is a girl that had been uh, dealt with STDs. This is a girl that dealt with drugs. This is a girl that had run away from home, I think, at 14 or 15 I mean, it's just got this long story, 
And here's this girl that gets converted right in front of my eyes. And every one of these things, as you start to listen to them, I watched manifest. I wasn't smart enough to know all the stuff here in the text. But as you look back, I go, wow, there it was, the intensity. Her focus changed. What does she do? She goes right back home to the guy she's living with and says, you're moving out. We're not going to do this anymore. That's what you call focus. That's what earnestness means. You go, my goodness, she's not joking about this. Her life's changed, isn't it? You don't have any doubt. And I'm sitting there with my mouth open going, because usually what do you got to do? You coax people, right? Please, would you consider this? Please, you twist their arm, you counsel them. No, when the Holy Spirit comes in, when it's a work of God, it, 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 it's just radical. That's the idea that I need you to come up with, that you and I need to be radicalized. We need to be trusting more in the radical change of the presence of the Holy Spirit for our children, for anybody else in our life, and for ourselves, where that radicalness takes place. And so that's that earnestness. See what eagerness to clear yourselves. She just began to clear her life. Those things which were rotten. She began to take these books and, and miscellaneous things she'd accumulated. She'd go, uh, Bruce, you know, I really need to get rid of this stuff, don't I? And I go, well, yeah, it's the right thing. Good. She'd take that stuff and she said, how should I get rid of it? And I said, well, you really should burn it. Fine. And she'd be burning these books and, and this stuff on yoga and this stuff on all the other junk that she had been into. It was all going out the door. It was going, she was earnest. She was sincere. She was moving forward. And the second one here, she was eager to get this thing clear. I'm going to get this cleaned up. That's the intensity with which she was functioning. What indignation. The idea of, of a, this hatred of sin. What sin had done to her. She, she now had this indignation toward what she had done in her life. The very thing that at one time she longed for, she now had an indignation. It just created, I don't want that anymore. I don't want this in my life. It was that indignation toward drugs and everything else like that. But she did not have an indignation toward people. It was just the most beautiful thing in terms of her character and, and how God begins to work and really begins to change people. It was an indignation toward the, the deed, the action, the drug, or whatever it was, but not an indignation toward the people that God had left in her life at that point in time. So he goes on. The next one, what alarm, uh, a sense of fear, a sense of... Uh, a focus, alarm going, I never want to go back there. I don't even want to get close to it. An alarmness, not a, uh, the word is really fear in the Greek, but it's, it's not a fear like I'm afraid, but it's fear like I don't even want that near me. I don't even want that as part of my life any longer. And as she began to act upon that, again, uh, very much demonstrating the purity of what that was. What longing. Uh, longing is kind of a, a deep, vehement desire. Uh, it, it has to do with this innermost longing. She kept going, and this is a neat thing. It's a longing to get rid of sin and a longing to help people get rescued from sin. You understand? It's not just a hatred of sin in your own life. It's a hatred of sin doing what it's doing to your friend's life. And so I watched her as she rescued. I told you, she rescued her, her, another one of her girlfriends who also had a living guy, who immediately proceeded to get rid of him also. You understand? Because the Spirit was working. She had this longingness, not to get rid of guys, not to hurt guys, but to, they, were, they were hating sin. They were, lives were changing in front of their eyes. And so all of these things began to change, and that was that, that kind of longing that you read there. And what concern, in terms of the, that uh, idea there, uh, zeal, a kind of readiness and concern to see justice done. 
Uh, justice meaning wanting to do it right, to function correctly, to make those right decisions. And you go and you step back and you go, oh my goodness, God, did you show all of that to me? I mean, I sat there with my mouth open, praising God for Sherry in my life, and she was thanking God for me and hers, and I'm going, why? You're blessing my socks off just being around you because I'm watching the Holy Spirit work. I'm watching Scripture come alive right in front of my eyes, and that's that miracle of what God's trying to help us understand. When sorrow is generated by the power of the Holy Spirit, it produces a totally different change than when sorrow is generated from within your own gut. So ultimately, worldly sorrow doesn't really change you. Worldly sorrow means you walk in and you walk back out exactly the same. Worldly sorrow does not bring about the healing or the power or the vehement hatred of sin or anything else. Worldly sorrow doesn't change any of those processes. So you come in, you sit in church, you go to communion, you participate on a Sunday or Wednesday or whatever it is, and you leave exactly the same because you're still stuck in a level of worldly sorrow, and God has got to shut that off, and he's got to bring you to godly sorrow, which has a totally different purpose, function, and outcome in it. And that's when he finally goes to the second part. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And that's the idea of ultimately the objective, to be above reproach. There is no question. You don't have to ask whether he's changed or she's different. No one had to look at Sherry and ask the question. No one doubted it. No one said you can't look at her eyes were clear, her face cleared, her, her countenance changed, her, her conversation changed, yet she didn't, she wasn't, she didn't remember, she, excuse me, she did not forget one single thing of the evil things she had done, one single thing of the things God had rescued her from. She did not rise up in judgmental or arrogance or anything like that, but in the power of the Spirit, the godly sorrow brought her to repentance that put a totally different push and direction in her life, and as a result, began to manifest everything that was there. That's why Paul could step back and go, wow, I am so thankful. I rejoice looking at you, Corinthians. It is so pleasant to think about you being my people and having this relationship with you. To actually think that she would write me a letter. To actually think that she might be praying for me. To actually understand that. And so even in my own distant way, in that little situation, I'm understanding exactly what God is doing here. So for you tonight, I'm not sure which one you need. I don't, need if, I don't know if you need to be more like Paul and you need to step out in confidence and you really need to give that tough word. Maybe there's somebody that just needs that tough word. Not a tough word that cuts them and hurts them, but a tough word that connects their, their sin, their particular attitude with God's word and gives that spirit the freedom to enter their life. Or maybe you're the individual that has to understand that you could be in a state of sorrow. And you've got to recognize whether it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. And you test that by whether or not you're really changing. Because godly sorrow always produces a real life-changing reality that begins to manifest in your actions, your words, and your thoughts. Worldly sorrow just kind of fluffs itself up, looks good, oh, and walks away and does exactly the same stuff all over again. Where godly sorrow produces this change and this empowering of the Holy Spirit. So whichever one you need to hear tonight, here's the miracle. There is nothing in my life that doesn't need the same uh, injection of fire, of first love, of everything that I remember in Sherry's life. There is nothing in my life that does not need that every day. There's nothing in your life that does not need that. 
Every one of you need to have that infused into your life if you've never tasted it, to taste it for the first time, and if you have tasted it, to be refreshed in it all over again so that you begin to walk in the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. And that's the, what God is offering to you and I through repentance, and that's the miracle of what he brings into us through this text. Let's pray together, if you would. And we'll kind of open it up here and everything else as we do this.